Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. In recent years, an exciting new branch of economics has emerged, behavioural economics. It integrates economics and psychology. Arguably, it offers a better understanding of economic behaviour and can help us develop more effective government policies. You've probably heard about the concept of a nudge, which is straight out of behavioural economics. To help us understand behavioural economics, I'm joined in this episode by my friend and colleague, Dr. Brendan Markey-Towler, a senior consultant at Behaviour Innovation, a Brisbane-based consultancy firm specialising in behavioural change. Prior to joining Behaviour Innovation, Brendan researched and taught economics at the University of Queensland and University College London. He is the author of An Architecture of the Mind, a Psychological Foundation for the Science of Everyday Life, which was published by Routledge in 2018. Clearly, Brendan is very well qualified to tell us about behavioural economics. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Brendan Markey-Towler, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Gene. Great to be here. Thank you. Brendan, I'd first like to start by asking about your experience. Uh, so you've gone from being an economics student, you've undertaken a PhD, and now you're working at a startup called Behaviour Innovation. Mm-hmm. Could you just explain a bit about your journey and, and also what Behaviour Innovation does, please? Sure, yeah. So it's it's a bit of an esoteric path, but I suppose somewhat straightforward. Uh, I became really interested in economics in high school, which was around 2007, 2008, which is a shockingly long time ago now. But uh, and, and at that time in Australia, it was a very interesting time to understand economics. We had the work choices uh, debate going on in industrial relations, and that was that was something we discussed in high school economics. And I just became absolutely fascinated with it. And, of course, a little later that year, once Kevin Rudd had uh, – resoundingly resolved that debate, we had the global financial crisis. So I became very interested in how economies work and what they, uh, how they interact with humans and, and, and with politics and with history and with society at large. So I decided to study it at university. When I started studying it at university, I became increasingly interested in the economy, not so much as a machine where you've got levers that you can pull and get um, flows around the system, but rather as a system of people and people with all their complexity, all their psychology. And that naturally led me to an interest in behavioral economics. And uh, that that was becoming really big at the time. And of course, uh, uh, Danny Kahneman's famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, came out around that time. So it was a really good time to be in behavioral economics. And that actually led me to go a little further because there were some things in behavioral economics I wasn't quite satisfied with. And so I became really interested in psychology and behavioral science more generally. And then in my third year of my economics PhD, uh, my economics undergraduate degree, I sat in a class with uh, Professor John Foster, former head of school at the University of Queensland, uh, that he taught on evolutionary economics. And evolutionary economics views the economy as a complex evolving system of people, uh, not dissimilar to 
natural selection and sexual selection and all of that. That's the, it draws on that sort of idea to understand the economy. And that led me, I, I just, bang, that was it. I was, I was hooked on this stuff. And that led me to do a PhD, which really sought to integrate psychology and economics together. Uh, and that, that led to, to a string of, uh, work. After that PhD was finished, I became increasingly aware, um, although I might not want to wanted to have admitted it because I'm a very competitive person, that academia wasn't really for me. Uh, and I, I really wanted to get out into the world and see this cross-disciplinary stuff in action. And I want to be a, I wanted to be a part of this cross-disciplinary blend of psychology and economics. And in, as part of my search, I met my, uh, my, my now CEO, John Pickering, who's the CEO of Behavior Innovation, and he offered me a job. And here we are. I now work for, um, this fantastic, uh, startup here, uh, out of Brisbane. And we do applied behavioral science. So we have a, a broad team, mostly composed of psychologists. I'm the first person in the company that has a strict economics background, uh, in terms of my certifications anyway. Uh, but we, we try and take the world's knowledge of how people behave, how they think, how they act, how they interact with other people in society and apply that to solving some of the world's big problems in environment, in health, in animal welfare, in agriculture, all across the board. So that's what we do here. And that's a bit of the story about where I got to. Okay. Wow. We might have to come back to that. I I wasn't expecting anything in animal welfare. Sure. Uh, so yeah. we can chat about that a bit later. And I'm also glad you mentioned that Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm-hmm. because a bit later, given that this, the topic of today's conversation is behavioral economics, we can chat about, you know, what did he mean by thinking fast and slow? Mm. But before we, uh, we get on to behavioral economics, could you just explain, please, Brendan, how economists traditionally thought about human decision-making? So, economists had a particular mm. model of human uh, behaviour and decision-making. Could you just elaborate on that, please? For sure, yeah. Um, I think the best way to anchor this is that the theory is is very simple. It's one sentence. People respond to incentives. Okay. Now, what does that mean? Uh, what that means uh, at a lower depth? And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of complexity that you can go into, a lot of high dimensional mathematics and so on. But at the end, it's very, very simple. The way economists think of how people respond uh, to their environment and behave is that they respond to costs and benefits. And what people do is that they have a list of alternative behaviors that they could manifest in the world, and they pick the one that is associated with the highest net benefit. So, I'll give you an example. It's coming up on lunchtime right now in Brisbane. So, where do we where do we go for lunch? That's a behaviour, right? So, we've got a whole bunch of alternatives. Do you want to eat your own? Do you want to go to that fantastic Vietnamese place down the road? Do you want to have Thai? If you're up for it, why not Maccas? Uh, so, what you do is you list all of an economist would say you do is you list all of these alternatives and then you do a cost-benefit analysis of them and you pick the one with the highest net benefit. That's what we mean by responding to incentives. Now, I want to be very clear about this. That's not a bad model. And it's actually very useful. It explains a lot. That model helps us to understand the fundamental model of economics, which is the demand and supply model. Uh, We know that uh, that model allows us to understand that as price goes up, 
demand goes down because we switch to the cheaper alternative. It, it changes the cost-benefit calculus. Supply goes up as prices go up because it changes the cost-benefit analysis. It becomes more attractive to supply more. And so that's useful, but there's also a strong neural basis for this. We know that this sort of thinking does exist. It does exist and it's associated with an area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. If you want to locate it, it's just above your eyes at the front of your brain. And that's associated with thinking about the future. It's about getting into what's the future going to hold? What are the consequences? What are the costs and benefits? Now, so that model is not wrong. It's just better to think of it as it's incomplete. There's a whole lot going on in the mind behind that and beneath that uh, that that you can miss if you just focus on behavior as responding to costs and benefits. There's a lot more going on. I'll give you an example. So this is one that the folks at home can can follow along with. If you put your finger right up in front of your eyes, uh, put one finger up in front of your eyes and focus on that finger, you see one finger. Now, look past that finger to a point in the distance. All of a sudden, you've got two fingers. Right. So what's going on there? Well, what's going on is that you actually don't have just one picture presented to your mind at any given time. You have two, one from your left eye, one from your right. And what your brain does subconsciously, you don't even know that you're doing it. It takes those two pictures and it blends them together, reconciles them, integrates them together subconsciously into one picture based on what you're focusing on. And you get one image of what you're focusing on. That's what uh, that's a process we call stereos- uh, stereoscopy. And you don't even know that you're doing it. It's subconscious. And that affects just the way that you see the world. You don't even know that you're doing it, but you are. You know, so we can go a little bit s- step further than that. And we know that our brain actively constructs our perception of the world based on um, models and memories of our past, and that occurs way below the consciousness. What we know our brain does is that it connects together all of the information that's coming up from our body and matches it to models and memories of what you expect to see in that environment. So you don't see your environment perfectly. You don't see all the alternatives that you could choose imperfectly. You don't see all the costs and benefits in a true way. You see what you expect to see. A famous example of this um, is something we call the invisible gorilla experiment. You give people, uh, you bring them in, you sit them down, you get them to watch a video um, of a basketball game and you ask them to count the number of passes in that game. Then you ask them, how many passes did you see? And they give you an answer, and then you say, "And did you see the did you see the uh, the woman in the gorilla suit come out and beat her chest for eleven seconds, and then walk off the pitch, the the, the court?" And fifty percent say, "No, I didn't see that." And the reason for that is that we don't expect to. Our brain subconsciously focuses us on particular information in our environment based on what we expect to see. It works the other way around, too. We can see things that actually aren't there um, uh, because we're expecting to see a pattern. So we can see things like the Virgin Mary in a cheese toast Mm. um, and so on. Now, why does that matter for economics? Why does that matter for, for our view of how humans behave? Well, If you focus on just costs and benefits, you miss all of the complex and equally important factors that might be determining how people are behaving. For instance, we go back to our lunch example. Even the list of alternative lunches 
that you consider depends on your whole life experience, which contributes to the way you match up and construct the environment to see it. Complex subconscious processes affect what you're even seeing. So you might not have heard of shawarma. You might not have had shawarma, and that means you might not even see the delicious shawarma place in the environment. You might not even see it. It's an invisible gorilla. And so what that means is that economics is not wrong. It's just not complete. It's incomplete. You can miss lots of really important factors in the way that people are behaving, things that affect how they respond to their environment, how they even construct costs and benefits associated with the various behaviours they could take. Yes. So you've been describing a model that is it's there's a rational agent or a rational consumer and they're forward-looking and they understand what's going to provide them satisfaction. They understand their, you know, what's in, in their own interests. Um, but what you're saying is, well, there could actually be things that you're unaware of. You don't realise these could, you know, this product could could be good for you. Or if you think about other choices, you don't realise that education, uh, a particular sort of education, could be to your advantage. You don't appreciate what that m- would mean, or you don't appreciate the benefits of health. I mean, so is that is that the right way of thinking about it? That the problem with the traditional economic model is we just assume too much knowledge, too much rationality, too much forward-looking behaviour. Well. I'm always loath to 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 criticize um, the standard economic model because there's various different ways that you you can take it. Uh, you, 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 you it takes uh, you you can make certain assumptions that uh, within that model that people are completely forward looking that people know all of the relevant information that they know all of the various alternatives that they could choose and can accurately assess things like education choices, like health choices, uh, like investment choices, which is a really important one for understanding the global financial crisis, uh, you, you can make those assumptions. And economics uh, generally, traditionally, and still to this day, does make the assumption that we're presented with a what psychologists call a veridical picture of our future and what will happen in it. And veridical just means that it's truthful, that it's accurate. And we just know that that's just – that's that's – there's an element of truth to that. There's there's an extent to which you have to be able to see things in the world in order to be able to survive. Um, but it's a very it's 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 a very incomplete perspective on how human beings react to the enormous complexity of the world. The sheer amount of information in the world that you would have to process to make what economists might think of as a rational decision is just way beyond the capacity of the human being to calculate. So we have to filter stuff out. We have to construct things uh, based on our memory of what matters in the environment. Uh, so again, it's not that the model is incomplete and it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it needs to be understood as, as, as part uh, or understanding a part of our decision making. There's a whole process behind our decision making where we construct and understand our environment. And that's a much more complex process than simply knowing everything that could possibly happen, knowing all the costs and benefits associated with what we could do, and then just doing it. So it's much more, it's much more complicated than that. We 
don't we we absolutely know there's a very good book that's just come out called the case against reality by uh, one of the pioneers of uh, visual neuroscience and his whole point is if your cognition was organized in the way that an economist might think to perceive the world accurately you'd be dead because you don't have the cognitive capacity to accurately depict the world to yourself and even if you did processing that huge amount of information would just take way more than your brain is able to do. So what your brain does is it focuses on a few different things in your environment based on your memories of what works for you that makes your life better rather than worse, and then you make decisions based on that information. So you can see how an economist is not wrong in that view of the world. It's just incomplete. Yes. So is what you're talking about, are they heuristics or rules of thumb? Is that what they call them? Yeah, so that's one word for them. There's various different words, cognitive routines, heuristics, rules of thumb, uh, procedural rationality. You can call them various different things, but at the end of the day, uh, the way human beings uh, think and act in their environment is based on what is known in behavioral economics as heuristics, which are simple rules of thumb. If this, then that. If food in the environment, possibility for satisfying my hunger. Really simple rules. Okay. So we're on to uh, behavioral economics now. Could you explain, Brendan, first, what behavioral economics is, if we can mm. provide a, a definition of it, and where does it depart from traditional, what they call neoclassical economics? Mm. Sure, and so this might be, this might become a bit of a controversial answer in academic circles, but it's a fairly well accepted one. The, the, there's a difference between behavioral economics and behavioral science, and behavioral science is much more in the psychology realm. What behavioral economics is mostly concerned with is understanding ways where understanding the way that human behavior in reality, differs from what the standard model we were just talking about would predict. So it's all concerned about cataloging, discovering, and trying to explain ways that the behavior of a human being is not the same as what you'd expect if they were accurately depicting the entire list of behaviors that they could manifest in the world accurately assessing the costs and benefits associated with those and then choosing the one with the maximum net benefit. Behavioral economics is associated with or behavioral economics is defined by understanding where human behavior deviates from that because of the heuristics we were just talking about, the way that we process our environment based on simple rules, based on biases, uh, ways that we don't accurately depict whatever that means, um, and it's not immediately clear what that means, uh, accurately depict the environment in our thinking about it. So that's what behavioral economics is really concerned with, is deviation. Why aren't people behaving the way that neoclassical economics would expect them to behave? Mm, exactly. So what are some of those biases, Brendan, and how does it affect decision-making? Can, can you provide some examples with respect to, say, what people are, are investing in or the, you know, whether they're saving enough? Is, is that an example? Of- yeah, for sure. I mean, the saving one is a classic example. The, 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 the fact that people don't save for the future uh, is, is, is one of the – it's been known in economics since the 50s. And 
we have a good explanation for it. Uh, we call it uh, hyperbolic discounting. This is one of these uh, so-called biases. Um, uh, although, yeah, so the, the, this is one of these biases that that is talked about in behavioral economics. What is going on in hyperbolic discounting is economists will tend to think, unless they're a behavioral economist, they'll tend to think that people. Um, think about the future, think about all the costs and benefits in the future, and then discount those costs and benefits back to the present in the way that an accountant would with a with an interest rate. And what we found is that that doesn't really, you know, that, that if, if that were the case, people would be saving a lot more than we actually observe them saving. So what we what what was proposed by a, a very famous economist called Strotz was this idea of hyperbolic discounting that people discount the future much more than you'd expect if they were quote unquote rational and uh, and there's a good ex- psychological explanation for that which is we live right now we don't live 10 years in the future we've got to make decisions right now and uh, we evolved in a in a in a world where we didn't expect to necessarily live 10 years from now we needed to make decisions in the present so we really just almost ignore the future uh, to a large extent. In fact, that's unique across species. Uh, human beings are just about the only species that can think systematically about the future. So we'd expect us to display this quote-unquote bias, but that's one of them, is that uh, people don't save as much as we might otherwise expect because of this aspect of our minds where we strongly discount, ignore, don't care about the future. Another example, uh, which which is um, particularly interesting in the context of Australia, is just how powerful a default option is. So, if you want to get people to uh, save in a particular superannuation fund, one or the other, uh, one way you can make sure they choose a particular super fund over another is set it as a default. And then so that you actively have to choose a different one. So, this is classic at the university. Most staff will just have an account with uh, Unisuper because that's the default fund. Now, why is that the case? Uh, Why is that bias? We call that default bias in behavioral economics. Why does that exist? Well, partly because it takes a lot of cognitive energy. It takes a lot of resources to think about and actively construct and think about, okay, what are the various costs and benefits associated with uh, this super fund over that super fund and how do they compare to each other? It's really difficult. So over the span of our evolutionary history, we've learned, all right, we just go with the default. That's the one that we'll go with unless there's a really good reason that we go another way. So that's another example, especially in the world of finance. And so all of these ways that our mind work are informing a different way of thinking about how people behave in the economy when they're making decisions about health, education, welfare, investments. Okay. You mentioned uh, Kahneman's book before, Thinking Fast and Slow. How does that relate to what we've just been talking about or that concept of thinking fast and slow? Mm. Would you just be able to elaborate on that for a minute, please, yeah, Brendan? Sure. Yeah. So, so um, uh, Danny Kahneman is one of the, the – well, he's – 
acknowledged as the father of behavioral economics. Uh, and that's because he was, he was instrumental in cataloging a lot of these deviations of human behavior from models that people were uh, using in economics. And around 2003, around the time that he won the Nobel Prize, he started thinking about, well, how would I explain why that's the case? Could I pr- offer an alternative model to the standard model. And and the model that he came up with is is famously known as thinking fast and slow. It, it proposes that there are, and this is actually fairly well reflected in our neurophysiology as well, believe it or not. Um, what he proposed is that we, we can think of the mind as being comprised of two systems, system one and system two. Now, one of those systems is fast, intuitive. It makes decisions really quickly. It uses those heuristics, those simple rules of thumb to think about the environment. And it makes really quick judgments based on the information that we have and and based on our past memories and very quickly forms up a a simple, rough and ready um, analysis of our environment that can cause us to behave. It's often completely subconscious. You know, this is, this is what you're doing when you're even thinking about, uh, where to go for lunch. You just act out the routine. You have a habit. That's yeah. one system. The other system is the one more associated with what economists typically think about. That's slower thinking. It purposefully tries to construct various costs and benefits associated with behavior. Think about the future consequences of our actions. Um, so you might ask, well, why don't we always use the the, the more rational, quote unquote, system? Well, because it's, it's taxing. It takes a lot of energy. Uh, if we did that all the time, we'd be paralyzed. We'd never behave. So this model proposes, Daniel Kahneman's uh, model proposes that these two systems aren't uh, diametrically opposed. They're not even contradictory. They exist for very good reasons. They allow us to behave in, a, in an adapted way to our environment. Okay. Brendan, just on the uh, those heuristics, uh, mm. one of the ones I find interesting is that you might end up choosing the medium size. You'd go straight to the medium-sized coffee or the medium-sized popcorn or whatever, mm. and... The funny thing is that businesses can end up selling more product if they just increase the size of all of their, of course. Yeah. you know, all of their uh, their drinks or their their products, and that's a problem for the the rational economic model, isn't it? Um, because it suggests we don't really know what's in our own interests. We'll just pick this this mid sized option. We'll we'll think fast. We'll pick the middle option. Mm. And so that's a, a key thing in behavioral economics, I think, isn't it? Is it the framing? Is that what they call it? Yeah, frame, there's a couple of things going on in that in that sort of example: framing and anchoring. Um, another famous example of of that is uh, of that sort of heuristic at play is when is a situation described by the economist, behavioral economist Robert Frank. When you walk into Bunnings, they've got um, a, a five thousand dollar barbecue <laughs> available at the front, and it's got all the bells and whistles. You know, it could cook your steak, but it can also, uh, it's also got a, you know, I don't know, a refrigerator. It's got a Wi Fi router, it's got a Wi-Fi router that automatically connect, uh, works out when you're at medium rare, and it's just ridiculous and you don't need it. But what we find is quite interesting is that that then anchors people's um, 
beliefs about what they actually want. They use that as a reference point uh, to judge what they actually want. So you can frame an environment in a way that changes the way people think about what they want. The median, uh, the median example is is an interesting one. You, you set, and there's a good evolutionary reason for that. Again, right? There's, we we think, okay, well that might be too little, that might be too much, maybe in the middle's just right. You know, it's the Goldilocks uh, story. And that's a good evolutionary heuristic, you know. We kind of go, okay, well, that might be a little bit – that's a lot easier than trying to figure out exactly the amount of something that we need or, or the exact amount of coffee or the exact amount of sugar or the exact amount of calories. It's easy just to go, that's small, that's large, don't want the small, don't really want the large, kind of want the medium. Um, now, that that's, that's often a useful heuristic, but it can be, as the kids now say, quote, unquote, hacked. Right. You, you can use that framing of the environment, setting something as big, something as small, something in the middle. You can use that in order to manipulate people's behavior, right? So the, the barbecue example is exactly one of those. You put the $5,000 barbecue out the front, and then that anchors people's thinking about what's the best top of the range, the best one that that you can get but might not want that. Another example, of course, is uh, real estate. Um, it's trade secrets, and I, I I love real estate agents who are listening. But you know, you show the dog lot. The 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 every real estate agent has their dog lot, the one that is really bad and not great. So they show you that as a baseline, and then you go, well, I'm willing to pay more than what the dog lot was. So you can you can hack these heuristics. They exist for a very good reason. They're quick. They're fast. Generally, they allow us to respond in a pretty good way. Not perfect, but good enough way to our environment. But they can be hacked and they can be used to manipulate our behaviour. Yes. The other example that I've heard before is about the fancy restaurant, which will have you know like a $3,000 or $4,000 bottle of wine mm. on the list. So when you buy a bottle of wine that's worth 200 or $300, you don't feel as bad. You think you're getting a... A bargain. Oh so, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's extraordinary, uh, just how powerful that can be. Hmm. Brendan, what I'd like to explore now is what does this all mean for government policy, hmm. and how are governments taking advantage of these behavioural economics insights, uh, particularly hmm. the insights that um, associated with? There's that book from a few years ago by was it Thaler and Sunstein? Hmm. Nudge. Yes. Yes. So, how are governments using these behavioural economics in insights in policy making? Sure. Well, the first thing is they are being used. Uh, that book, uh, Nudge, that you mentioned was hugely influential. Just about every um, executive government in the world has at what we call a nudge unit now. And you can think of the way that this affects government policy making thusly. There is way more to behaviour than price. Simple as that. You you do, you you can't and and even then you can't just tax something and go home. It, it, there's a lot more to human behaviour. So an example of this is is in sugar taxes. Uh, you know the, the what we've what the studies have found is that sugar t uh, demand for sugary drinks, demand for sugary foods is is technically inelastic. What economists call technically inelastic, which is a one percent tax correlates with a less than one percent increase, a uh, decrease, sorry, in consumption. So, you know that if you wanted to whack a tax on that to to decrease sugary food consumption, you've got to whack a really big tax 
on it. But with this uh, new behavioral economics perspective, uh, we can we have a broader set of factors that we can think about that are affecting that decision. You know, we, we understand that people, that there's complex considerations. You know, you have a craving for sugary food or even more, I think, poignant. It's, it's a little indulgence. You know, you come home and you have an ice cream with your wife and it's, it's, it's just that little indulgence that makes your life worthwhile. So there's all these complex things that are going on in behavior. And if we understand that or at least understand a little bit of it, we can change the environment in which people are making decisions ever so slightly and nudge them to a better uh, behavior. So examples of this abound. You know, we've talked about the superannuation example. People, I uh, think in the United States it was, uh, you set a default saving option and it changes people's behavior. They, they save more when you set that as the default. Um, one that we've, we've, we've been working on in Australia is a simple text message can really help people show up to court. Uh, you know, it's a really important thing for them to do. You might just try and find them more if they don't show up to court, but there's a lot more complexity to behavior than that. So let's think about that complexity. Maybe just send a text you know, and just nudge people by framing their environment in a, in, a, in a slightly different way to get them to think slightly differently and their behavior changes quite drastically. So those are some of the things that are being used around all the world. Uh, but what's really interesting now is that governments are beginning to think, well, maybe we should be going beyond that. That's what um, behavior innovation is involved in, is what behavioral science uh, is now telling us is go further. Get out of what in Queensland we call the Tower of Power. Get out of the Tower of Power. Get out of the government office and go and talk to the people. Understand the complexity of their behavior. Understand all of the factors that are influencing their behavior and their complexity and their irreducibility. And, and you know, as the saying goes, walk a mile in their shoes. And if you do that, you'll start to see how all these complex factors, you know, craving, indulgence, addiction, um, the time of day are impacting their behavior and you can start framing environments, designing systems that help people make better decisions. Okay. Just going back to that, um, that example you gave in the US. So are you talking about having an automatic percentage of your salary go into, I think they call it a 4, 401k in mm. the, the US. So uh, that's, that's the example I think you're giving. Is that, the is that specific right? example, the specific example is, uh, that when employees come into a new company in the United States, they, they have to fill out a form, uh, that, that, um, much like in Australia, you have to choose a superannuation fund. In the United States, you have to choose a 401k fund. Yes. And if you don't choose it, then you don't get your savings okay. allocated to them. So what the company can now do or what the government now does is pick one for you and say, this is your default um, yes. and you can choose okay. another one if you want. And it's surprising. It's amazing, Gene, how uh, how much of an effect that can have, just that simple thing, uh, the effect that it can have on people's behaviour. Oh, absolutely. The court example you gave too was a, a really good one. You think that people would be really conscious they need to turn up to court if they have to, but um, it's uh, as you mentioned, there, there are a lot of things going on, so they can be they can benefit from that nudge. In Australia, we've found that uh, 
the ATO has got better results in terms of encouraging people to lodge their tax returns with with some nudges. I think I, I think I remember seeing that and and just pointing out, well, this percentage of the population lodge their tax return on time. And that's the sort of thing you mean, is it, with nudges? Yeah, that's exactly. And I. I, I I won't pretend that I know all of what the behavior, what the ATO is doing with behavioral science, but I have noticed that they're very interested in this. You know, sure things in life are death and taxes. You know, we want to make sure that we get that especially sure. Um, and that they, there are things I've, I've actually in filling out my tax return recently noticed little tricks that they employ uh within the, within the within the form itself you know giving you suggestions to make sure you're not over deducting or uh, 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 uh yes on your tax returns and so on giving you reminders about your tax time uh, coming up these little these little things they actually cost very little these these interventions but they can have a big effect on people's behaviour, and, and certainly the tax office in Australia is is interested in those in in how they can use behavioural economics and behavioural science under the banner of behavioural insights uh, to get the behaviour that they want to see. Yes, I thought it was good you mentioned all these nudge units that have been set up, and they've been set up in the centre of governments mm. uh, in in the in the centres. So in places like the Prime Minister and Cabinet Department in Australia here, and I think uh, you know very central in the UK as well. Mm. So I can see that uh, you know, a lot of the senior bureaucrats obviously appreciate the the value of the insights offered by behavioural economics, uh, which is good to see. What I'd like to ask you is. How behavioural science differs from behavioural economics and whether is it fair to say that behavioural science is now, it's, it's able to inject itself into policy making because behavioural economics uh, led the way? Would that be the a right, would that be correct or am I, am I thinking that economics is just Am I biased because I think, well, economics is the most important thing and as soon as economists started talking about psychology, that's allowed the, the actual real psychologist oh, no, to come no, in? no, 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 no. It, that, that's, that's a very accurate way to think of it. Uh, I'll, I'll break that down into two. Um, so, first of all, how does behavioural economics differ from behavioural science more generally and then um, – how did behavioural science get into the government? Because we are noticing that, that there's more talk about behavioural science as distinct from behavioural economics. So we, we talked about behavioural economics earlier as, as really concerned with deviation, um, how people differ from the standard model of economics and the predictions of the standard model of economics. And that, that kind of came about because we were interested in People like Danny Kahneman, Amos Tversky, Richard Thaler uh, were interested in, well, what are we missing? What, what are the economists missing? What are they missing in behavior? What are they not explaining? How, how could, what are the ways in which this model does not map onto reality? Now, behavioral science is kind of the next logical step beyond that. It's not concerned with deviations per se. It's concerned with just understanding human behavior period. Draws on all of the subjects that you'd expect, psychology, anthropology, social science, economics as well. We mustn't forget economics is useful. Draws on all of these 
perspectives just to understand human behavior and why it is the way that it is. And I think that's actually immensely positive. I think that that's a great thing for uh, our perspective on humanity because it's not setting up some sort of ideal anymore. This is the way that we think people ought to behave. It's going, well, let's just try and understand the way that they do. And that's that's the difference between behavioral science and behavioral economics, as you define those terms if you were being quite strict about it. And obviously, the boundary is a bit blurred. Now, how that, that we, the importance of behavioral economics for simply beginning that discussion in government cannot be understated. You know, economics is the applied science of industry and government, I'm fond of saying, because that's what industry and government exist to do, is they exist to act in the economy and interact in the economy. Of course, the government has social roles as well, but, you know, the economy is a really important human system. So, economics, understandably, is, is, is... extremely influential in the government. But what was really valuable about behavioral economics was simply opening the eyes of the profession to an alternative way of looking at people and an alternative way of looking at their behavior. And not not necessarily alternative, but maybe more complete or less incomplete, you know, just accounting for more factors than just costs and benefits, accounting for the way that those costs and benefits are un- are even constructed. Uh, so, behavioral economics was absolutely essential for, you know, keeping the door open and, and wedging it open. And now what's interesting is, is seeing the understanding that, okay, well, we now know that all these factors are quite important, that people don't behave in a way that's only influenced by costs and benefits. It's influenced by a lot more. Let's understand that and, and, and let's not put too many uh, assumptions on what behavior should be necessarily according to economics. Let's just understand behavior as it is, as a complex, multifaceted, irreducible, difficult to understand problem. But behavioral economics was the thing that got that into yes. the government. It really opened our view of, of how we could understand human behavior in society and the economy. And this has all happened in the last 10, what, 10 to 15 years? Would it be correct to say that? Yeah, well, in the, the, the pioneering research in behavioral economics started in the 70s. Okay. But, uh, but it really made its mark felt on governments when Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, he of the Nobel Prize, uh, wrote the book. Nudge, Nudge, which was the the, the pivotal moment at which behavioral economics stopped being just an academic exercise in cataloging deviations from uh, the standard, quote unquote, model of economics and started being something that we could apply in policy um, to inform ways that we can frame the choice environment, the the behavior environment, the environment in the individual to, to change their behavior. Sure. I'll have to put that in the show notes, but I think that was around- Oh, that was 2008. 2008. 2008. Yes, that was the date. So, it was around 2008. So, we're only about 10 years into this- into this revolution. I mean, of course, industry's been using a behavioral uh, version of behavioral economics since <laughs> since the 1950s. It's just that it's called marketing, um, okay. <laughs> not not behavioral economics. But for government, it really gets started in 2008. That's when the behavioral insights team at Number Ten Downing Street yes. gets started in in the UK. Um, 
when Cass Sunstein is invited to become part of the White House staff to advise President Obama on on how behavioural economics can inform policy. And that's around the time that you start seeing um, state and federal governments in Australia looking at setting up their own nudge units as well. And now it's all evolving again. Now we're starting to see a much broader interest emerge in those same departments in human behaviour in general, not just as how it's different from what we might expect, but what are all of the factors that are influencing it? Well, it's so important to understand because these biases, or say the inertia, the fact that we just, you know, we go with whatever this default super fund is, and then if we move, you know, have multiple jobs, we end up with multiple super funds. This ends up costing us money because of, yeah, we haven't got a consolidated super fund and we're paying for all these insurances we we don't need to pay for or we have historically i think there have been some policy changes recently or the government's been looking at that so well i'll go one step further you know why this is why this is so important to understand this stuff you look at environmental policy okay okay i think we can all agree that there's like five people in the world who genuinely want to live in an industrial dystopia, right? There's like five people in the entire world who genuinely want to live in industrial revolution era Manchester with the smokestacks, the Dickensian conditions, all of that. It's like genuinely maybe five people. Most people want to live in a fairly healthy environment. Why are we on the verge of street fighting about climate change? Why, why are we so divided and why are our perspectives and our perception of the same issue that fundamentally I think we actually agree about? Why are we so different? Why do we? Why are we getting to a stage where we hate the other side? Why are we getting to that street fighting stage? You know, Brisbane, we've been, and various other cities have been uh, in near lockdown in in recent months uh, due to extinction rebellion protests. Um, so why can't we get traction on these issues? And that's where behavioral science can be really interesting because it helps us understand how perception can be so different between different people and why we can have fundamentally different views of something like climate policy, even when we agree that there's an underlying problem that might be, need to be dealt with there. So that's some of the stuff about why this is so, so, so important. Um, you know, I, I think and I, I back this up by making the move into industry, I think that this is one of the most important advances in our knowledge uh, in this century so far um, and, and probably in the last century for policy making that switch to trying to understand why people think the way they do, why they behave the way they do in a holistic manner that incorporates all of these different disciplines. I think that's... Absolutely critical. I think that's the most important thing that we can be doing right now with this rise in toxicity and divisiveness is to try and understand, okay, that exists for a reason. What is that reason? Can we work with it and bring people together on some of these massive issues that are facing our society today? Okay. I hadn't uh, expected to get onto this topic, Brendan. Uh, I'm not (laughs) – we probably can't solve it today, though. Though what I would like to ask you about is some of the work you've been doing with, uh, you know, the work that Behaviour Innovation has been doing here in Brisbane. Mm. You mentioned animal welfare before. Is that something you can 
you can talk about? Uh, it's embryonic. I, embryonic. We pro- yeah, we, we, we probably shouldn't say too much okay, about it okay. as, as yet. Uh, but I can tell you about, in particular, our, our major flagship project, Project Cane Changer. Okay. And this was this this uh, project is is an example. It's it's perhaps in some ways the defining example of how behavioural science is moving beyond just behavioural economics. And so that that whole project was around. Uh, here in Queensland, we have this thing called the Great Barrier Reef. Not sure if you've heard of it, but it's you know one of the seven wonders of the world. <laughs> um, so we, we like that. It's 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 a very nice thing. We 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 care about it deeply, and you'll find just about no one in the country who genuinely hates that. Wakes up in the morning and goes, you know what? I hate the Great Barrier Reef. I want it gone. And yet we have there is some evidence that. Cane farmers' uh, practices around fertilizer use are contributing to nitrogen runoff onto the Great Barrier Reef that damages it. Okay, not great. All right. We don't want that to happen. So how about we stop that? So various industry groups and the state government got together to develop a, a, a environmental best management practice uh, that the cane farmers could adopt to prevent that runoff, but they wouldn't. Why? State government uh, and, and industry groups tried subsidies, which is the standard economic way of trying to get this this behaviour change. Try subsidies. Try to subsidise the innovation. They even tried talking about legislation and forcing the farmers to adopt a particular behaviour. Nothing seemed to work. So what was going on? And that's when uh, behaviour innovation was called in to understand, well, what is going on? And we went in and we we started talking to the farmers. Why are you resisting um, the, the the adoption of this behaviour so much? And it's a famous story in our company of our CEO uh, got out of the car at a at a cane farmer's um, uh, farm with a copy of the best management practice plan in hand. Said. I'm here to talk to you about, you know, fertilizer runoff onto the Great Barrier Reef. And the farmer said, John, give me that plan. I'm going to put it on that fence paling and I'm going to put a bullet through it. And after that, we're going to go in and I'm going to show you 30 years worth of plans that I've complied with. I've adopted those plans to care about the Great Barrier Reef, to care about my environment. And I am still castigated, maligned as an environmental bandit by those people in Brisbane and the media, you know, and, and, and that's really, that really sucks. I'm an environmental custodian. I care about the environment. And we started going, well, that's really interesting. You know, that, that sort of behavioral information that suggests something to us. We call learned helplessness where uh, people's belief in the association between their behavior and the outcome of it breaks down. And they say, no matter what I do, I'm not going to get a good outcome. And that's a really interesting behavioral science phenomenon. And we designed a program around addressing that. You know, we use things like uh, behavioral contracts, getting the farmers to sign up to environmental best practices and getting the state government to sign up as well to promoting the fact that the farmers were doing that, uh, helping the farmers 
making it easier for them to comply with this practice, for instance, by getting the whole family involved in the record keeping that was required. And we designed not a nudge. It's beyond nudge. It's it's a whole system of strategies to change people's behavior for the better. And this is important, bring groups together who previously were at each other's throats. And I think that's an immensely positive thing. That's some of the work that we do here, and we're now trying to roll that out to various other projects uh, in agriculture, in health, in animal welfare. We want to do it all. We want to uh, try and make the world a better place to use behavioral science to understand where people are coming from, understand their behavior, understand what's stopping them from behaving a certain way, and bring groups together to solve some of these huge issues in our world. Okay. Now, the concept of a nudge, it, it just occurred to me I should bring this up. It, they're calling it a nudge because it's its gentle, isn't it? Is that the mm. idea? It's not a big stick like a tax? Or, That's or, right. Yeah, so it's something that is uh, it's designed to get people to do the right thing but without the, the usual heavy hand of government. Yes, Yes. yes, that's right. And and nudge has its place. Nudge is, is, is quite useful. Um, but what we're starting to see is that you can go further. Yes. Um, and still not heavy hand of government type stuff, you know, still not we're passing a law to force you to change your behaviour. But we can develop more involved policies. Uh, we can develop more involved interventions, things like, as I mentioned, um, setting up a strategy around promoting good behaviour and, and knowledge of good behaviour. Well, that sounds like a school teacher, doesn't it? But quote, unquote, better behaviour uh, and, and, and celebrating it and because we know that that's, a, that's something that really promotes um, behaviour change. We know that if we get just a little more involved, the nudge and start talking to the community and and helping them teach them ways that it's that they can change their behavior that's not a nudge but it's very effective we used that in project cane changer uh to to help with record keeping it was a much more involved uh process a much more involved intervention than just nudge alone but it got a really good outcome where nudge might not have so nudge useful very valuable it's it's very light touch Hence, it's called a nudge rather than a push or a punch. Yes. Um, but we can go further okay. and still not have to, to, to resort to these heavy-handed tactics that we might have had to in the past. Okay, fascinating. Brendan, regarding behavioural science, what do we still need to learn? Mm. So, so, regarding behavioural science and behavioural economics, what don't we know? What what research needs to be done? What do we still need to to learn? Sure. That's, it's a really interesting question. Um, and it's actually a fascinating one because we know a lot. We know a lot about the human mind just, just because of neuroscience and the advances in neuroimaging alone. We know a huge amount about human behavior that we didn't use to. So it's kind of – I think that – and this might be a bit controversial – um, but I can, I say this as somebody who's in industry now, not in academia. I think that the biggest advance is in synthesis and in theory and in integration. 
because what we we know lots about the human mind. We know lots about the way that the brain functions, the way the mind functions, but that knowledge is is fragmented, it's scattered, it's not integrated, and that makes it kind of difficult to apply um, and and also to train people in the application of. This is why it's it's actually not that common for students to learn students of economics to learn behavioral economics it's often not the a core part of their curriculum so to me to my mind and this might be strange from somebody who's an applied uh, behavioral scientist now i think we need advances in theory to start saying right we've got you know the list of biases and heuristics that we've identified now runs into the hundreds but that's re- it's really difficult to apply a hundred things in practice, in industry. We need a couple. We need to reduce things down to simple, beautiful models that we can apply in our practice. So I think that's one of the things that we need is, 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 is simplification, synthesis, integration of what is otherwise a fragmented and scattered literature. But the other thing, and I think this is almost more important, in fact, I do think it's more important, is – Notwithstanding the fact that we need to integrate and, and, and make our models simpler and beautiful, we can do a lot with behavioral science. We can do a lot. We can change people's behavior. That is not the same as being able to say, should we? Ethics is absolutely essential here. And this is becoming ever more uh, a, a challenge um and a really important issue to start thinking about. There are some really scary places that you can go to with this behavioral economics and behavioral science knowledge. You can, you start talking brave new world terms about a behaviorally engineered society. So that's a re- we, we've got some thinking in this world at the moment. Cass Sunstein has been talking about nudge versus sludge. Uh, so nudge. Little changes to help you make better decisions, sludge. Little changes that make you that um, make it harder for you to make good decisions. Uh, but I think we need more sophisticated thinking as well. I think we really need to be returning to philosophy, and we really need to be t- returning to ethics to understand. Look, we could do a lot of things to change people's behaviour, but should we? What kind of society do we want to live in? So those two things, you know, theory. It's a bit strange for a person in industry to say maybe, but theory and ethics. I think we need a more beautiful, a more simple, and a more ethical model of behavioral science, the human mind, the human brain, and its interaction with other people in society so that we can move forward and address some of these really big problems that our society is facing. Yes. Just to finish up, if we can, I want to go back to that point you made about Mm. climate change and why there's such this divergence in opinions and, you know, what's behind it all. I mean, we live in – now we live in this post-truth or post-fact age and we've got filter bubbles and so we know that we've become more polarised. I wasn't – it wasn't – it didn't occur to me that behavioural economics or behavioural science had anything to say about that, but – would you be able to just explain where you were going with that, Brendan? I did, for I, sure. At the time, it just went a bit over my head. But in if, for if a you, penny, in for a pound. If you had more time to explain <laughs> that, please, I'd really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, you could write, and people can, I think people are writing, entire books on 
the behavioral dynamics at play with 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 uh, with climate change and climate policy. But wh- I'll just give you an example of something that can help us understand this issue because you know remember I said it's really difficult to believe that there are more than about 5 people in the world who genuinely want to live in an industrial dystopia. Yeah, you know, like who genuinely wants to live in Mad Max, right? Because that's the sort of environment that you think we might end up in. But yet we have these hugely sharp, divergent perspectives on it. So one thing that can help us understand that, and it comes more from behavioral science than behavioral economics, is we can understand this with with a phenomenon called cognitive dissonance. Um, and And that sort of this isn't widely accepted in the literature, but I've talked about it myself in some of my own work. That kind of can be understood to underlie two biases we know, which is confirmation bias and hypothesis filtering. Uh, and and the, the insight that cognitive dissonance theory offers is that it's really uncomfortable for people to hold two contradicting ideas in mind. And uh, it's really easy to think of, too, in climate change. We like secure, reliable electricity generated by coal-fired power stations. If you don't like that, you're wrong. I'm sorry, right? Because that's the basis of our entire electricity grid. If that goes down, you do not want to be in that world. I mean, just imagine what it would – like. Do the thought experiment. If you didn't have secure, reliable electricity, imagine what it would be like waking up tomorrow and trying to go about your day. It's not a pleasant world. At the same time, this idea is also true. We probably need to do something about climate change. And that behavior, using coal-fired power stations, the scientists tell us, is contributing to that. Those ideas are contradictory, right? It's uncomfortable to hold those ideas in mind is what cognitive dissonance theory tells us. And when we're in, dis- and when we're in uncomfortable situations, we try to get out of them. We don't like being um, uh, uncomfortable. We want to be more comfortable. So how do we do this? We try and avoid. We try and explain away. We try and find as much evidence as we can to, to deny the idea that we don't like. And so that goes both ways on this issue, right? So uh, we do try, if you if you like your electricity, if you like the idea that we that that we, we shouldn't all live in grass huts and that, that, that these hippies are, are, are trying to un, un, unravel the the uh, the socioeconomic structure that undergirds our uh, civilization, you're probably going to try and avoid, try to explain away, uh, find all the evidence you can against the um, severity of bushfires, for instance. California wildfires at the moment are quite bad. Uh, and that will that that belief structure will grow over time and on the other side if you like the idea that these evil capitalists and baby boomers are destroying the world more or through their through their electricity use you might want to ignore some of the facts about renewables aren't just aren't as secure and reliable on average there are some that are, are pretty good, but for the most part, those technologies aren't as secure and reliable as coal-fired power stations. So you'll try and find as many 
uh, you'll try and avoid, you'll try to explain away, you'll try to uh, deny, find evidence that denies that that is a genuine consideration. And that dynamic compounds. People become more and more and more and more and more convinced of their particular worldview in this effort to try and avoid cognitive dissonance. And it's not a huge surprise in that situation, if that's the case, that we would be on the verge of street fighting, right? Because we, we, we do observe people have literally different worlds that they live in um, because of this phenomenon. And behavioral science can help us to understand that. Behavioral science can help us come to terms with people on both sides of that debate, try and understand where they're coming from, and then try and design strategies which bring them together so that we can get movement on something that we genuinely, most people, overwhelming majority of people agree on, which is we want to live in a, in a healthier, more environmentally friendly world. Okay. I think I understand that now. Brendan, this has been fabulous. I've really enjoyed our conversation and- uh, it's gone beyond where I initially expected, but I'm very <laughs> grateful for that. So thank, oh, thank you, you so very much. much. Thank you very much for having me, Gene. It's been terrific being with you. Excellent. Thanks, Brendan. All right.